Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. August. Then a series of telegrams began to arrive. I must have a house with so many bedrooms. I must have a house on a beach or a lake. I must have a special room for my chauffeur. Another for my maid. I must have a dressing room of such and such a size. I must have hot and cold running water. Will my dog be happy? Or are there too many ticks? So many telegrams came that I began to get annoyed. Look here, I wrote to Mr. John. What goes on? I've handled stars like Ethel Barrymore, Jane Cowell, and Ina Clare, and I've never had as many troubles as I'm having now. He broke down and told the truth. He was the culprit. Miss Lawrence knew nothing about the telegrams. He was just trying to make sure she would be happily received. He felt that stars should be treated as stars. That they should have the best of everything. For Gertrude, he would have two or three small dressing rooms knocked together into one. Air conditioning, radio, a telephone... Everything to make her comfortable. Her dog, Mackie, a West Highlander, was most important to Gertrude's happiness. So he always saw to it that the dog was well taken care of and fed during every evening performance. I first got to know him well when I starred in his production of theater, the Guy Bolton dramatization of the Somerset Maugham novel. Again, Cornelia Otis Skinner. From the first day of rehearsal, I was aware of his kindness, his expansive, warm nature, and his inspiriting optimism. We had need of that optimism, for at the tryout in Washington, the show was lacerated by the critics to the extent that would have prompted a less courageous producer to close in one week. Not so John Golden. He had faith in the play, faith in the cast. It was a contagious faith, which kept us all going during the period of revisions and further tryouts and the happy result was a successful New York run and a long road tour. But I, I remember his relations with his actors because they were those of consideration and friendly interest. If anyone were ill, John was around personally to see what he could do. When my own father died, John, without my even suggesting it, closed the play for two days, although at the time it was doing capacity business. To me, John Golden typified all that was best and endearing in the manager of the old school. 
In his respect for tradition, his love of theater, his great sense of showmanship, and his charmingly candid awareness of being himself a big personage on Broadway. His very loquaciousness, which could at times even approach garrulity, was in the style of the old school. But it was always, always interesting and highly amusing. Yet there was nothing backward about this amazing man. His interest in the modern theater was keen. He kept abreast of politics, took part in civic projects, went zestfully in for countless national, community, and charitable activities, and always, always he had time for his friends. For his great quality was a zest for living and affection for his fellow man. In the words of Lord Tweedsmuir, he maximized his life. In 1924, Golden went to Hollywood to sink a shaft, he thought, into the gold fields of the infant picture industry. It was like a dream, he told his friends when he returned to New York. The picture business is as much like play producing as louse exterminating is like lion hunting. The differences are basic. And then there was radio. The first time I met John Golden, established, I've always felt our future relationship. That veteran of broadcasting, Mary Margaret McBride. I'd invited him sight unseen to be on my radio program, and as he always told it, I turned up in the studio about three seconds before we were to go on the air. I found him nervously fingering an enormous sheaf of notes, and according to him, without saying how do you do or even introducing myself, I swooped down crying, what have you got there? What I'm going to talk about, he answered, trying to hold on to his precious papers. He always declared that I grabbed the whole business out of his hand and threw it on the floor, and in the background, as we went on the air, the listeners could hear John Golden muttering to himself as he unavailingly scrambled about trying to pick up the pieces. I was right, of course, about his not needing notes, but though he appeared with me again and again, he always came fully prepared with lengthy reminders of what he wanted to say, and I always took them away from him and tore them up before his eyes. He invariably fumed and fretted that now he wouldn't be able to talk at all. As a matter of fact, nothing could have been farther from the truth once after I began doing my broadcast for my own apartment, I really had to lock Mr. Golden up in the kitchen so as to keep him quiet long enough to get in my commercials. He had a notion that he could improve on my way of doing them. But his methods were a little bit unorthodox. Right in the middle of my praise of an ice cream or a cleaner, he'd suddenly demand, What's that anyway? Is it really any good? Sniffing as if he were smelling something not quite first quality. But, says his secretary, Alice Cook, one thing he did love was publicity. And his assistant, Clarence Van Sapp, has an example of how this masterful sense of what to do at the right time saved Three's a family. We finally opened at the Long Acre. And we got split notices. Everybody was gloomy, sitting around the office with long faces, but not Mr. Golden. He said, I'm going to see what I can do about this. I love this play. It's funny. We're at war. People need humor. He says, I'm going to fight for it. And fight for it, he did. And one of his schemes was the printing of a postcard that said something to the effect that, uh, if you like Three's a Family, write and tell your friends, and we'll stamp and mail the cards. And so that we would get good audience reaction, all the seats in the rear of the theater, the Long Acre, he filled with soldiers and servicemen who were in town 
And it was this word-of-mouth publicity that eventually made our play catch on. He was the most fascinating man I ever met. And he certainly was one of the last of the old-time producers who worked in every department of the plays that he produced. And who never used outside capital. If he had faith in a play, he put his own money into it. And if his friends wanted to buy in, he refused to let them because he said it was his gamble and he didn't want to feel, if the play failed, that he had lost money for his friends. And now, the final chapter. John Golden died of a heart attack on June 17th last year. His imprint on the memories of those around him still vivid. The last time I saw John Golden was at the luncheon he gave for five of what he called his favorite women. Mrs. Roosevelt, the wife of the mayor of New York City, Mrs. Wagner, Helen Hayes, Dorothy Shaver, and me. And I'm proud that he asked me. It was a gay, moving occasion with him anxiously worrying whether we should have our orchids at the beginning of the meal or at the end and solicitously ordering little extras that he was afraid we might not know about. I wish I'd seen him the day he came to my apartment with a huge bunch of lilies of the valley, which he left with my doorman, along with a note which said, I picked these with my own hands in my garden this morning when the dew was on them. Almost to the very end, says actor Donald Cook, Golden was surrounded by work. He was always so active, even in his later years, when he was very often laid up. His mind was working all the time. He always had plans. He uh, never accepted any pessimistic attitude. As a matter of fact, I have in my possession now a letter which he wrote to me two days before he died. And the letter was setting up an appointment for me to come in and talk to him about a new play. But to those closest to him, the man of limitless energy began to show signs of listlessness. Towards the end, when he got very sick and nothing seemed to matter, of course he couldn't sleep at night and he used to watch television and listen to the radio. He was quite a fan on the radio, and he was always fussing about radios. Something was the matter with his radio. The thing was that he'd uh, doze off to sleep during the time, and then he couldn't hear it, and he'd imagine something was wrong. And towards the end, he got so very weary, he said, Alice, nothing matters. He said, don't ever get old. This, then, was Mr. John, and this was the golden story 1874 to 1955. The great thing about the theater is that it can indulge in so many talents and personalities. But there are very few showmen. John Golden was a showman. A showman who passes the torch of living theater from one generation to another. And so he has become part of our theater heritage. Goodbye, girls, I'm through Each girl that I have met I say goodbye to you Without the least regret I've done with all flirtation You've no more fascination There's but one to whom I'm true Goodbye, girls Goodbye, girls. Goodbye, girls. 
I'm through. You have been listening to another specially transcribed feature of NBC's Biographies in Sound series to be presented every week at this time. Script and editing by Joseph Dembo. Production, Gloria Kay. Your narrator was Kenneth Banghart. Prepared under the supervision of Arthur Wakeley for NBC News. Let's visit with McGee and Molly tonight on the NBC Radio Network.